From CPR News in Grand Junction, this is Colorado Matters. We take the Western Slope's political pulse with some surprises. Water is never political. That's the thing that always gets me about water. Something wait, wait, that water is never is political? It's not political. It's regional. I've seen Republicans and Democrats go in hand in hand fighting against other interests. Then, in Grand Junction, there used to be an Indian boarding school to force assimilation. At another near Durango, researchers have only begun to unearth the painful history. We suspect, we don't know that there's bodies buried on the campus, on one of the campuses. We suspect people have stories to tell of what happened there. Why uncovering the Fuller story is only the first step. And getting kids of color into the outdoors has a broader impact. When you're reaching young people, you're also reaching the families. You're about to step out the door. You've got your keys, your wallet, and CPR. If you have your phone with you, we're just a tap away. Listen live at CPR.org or use the Colorado Public Radio app on your phone. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner in Grand Junction. There's a tradition on the Western Slope, a political tradition, that tells you campaign season is in full swing. The Club 20 debates take place this weekend. Many candidates for public office will make an appearance addressing issues that matter to Western Colorado. Still, other candidates plan to skip the tradition. Charles Ashby is a longtime reporter covering politics at the Grand Junction Daily Sentinel. Hi, Charles. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing well. It's nice to see you. And Justin Golub is a professor of political science at Colorado Mesa. Hi, professor. Hi, Ryan. Welcome to Grand Junction. Oh, that's kind. It's lovely to be back. You know, as we pulled off the highway getting here, we couldn't help but see some of the largest political signs, banners really. For incumbent Republican congressman. Freedom. Freedom. Yes, they (laughs) proclaim freedom. This is for Lauren Boebert. Justin, how would you describe the state of her race against Adam Frisch, who uses the term conservative to describe himself as much as he says he's a Democrat? I think she's sitting pretty well at this point. A lot of the macro big factors that we look at in an election, they definitely on her side. For example, she's an incumbent. She's running in an election year where Biden is the sitting president. And usually the out party does well in this. So she has a lot of things at her back. She has high name recognition. She has a big platform. She has a loudspeaker that she's able to to connect with a lot of people from, and she's able to raise quite a bit of money. So at this point, things are looking good for her. Things can obviously change. Uh, Her challenger at this point is really facing one big issue, and that's name recognition and getting people to know who he is so he can get his message out there. I mean, it strikes me as well, Charles Ashby, that uh, another obstacle in Adam Frisch's way is that CD3 got redder in in redistricting. We've got to bring that up, is that now, instead of a plus five red, it's now plus nine. Um, and so that helps. And it doesn't help that, and I've said this to Adam, you know, you're a rich white guy from a mountain community. That does not sell well in Pueblo. That does not sell well in the San Luis Valley. And the key for a Democrat to win, even for the Republicans for that matter, is to win Pueblo. You know, there's going to be an anti bovard sentiment. There's, there has been, and whether or not that translates to get people to the polls, get Democrats to the polls. Yes, you're right. It's a midterm election. But the abortion issue could turn out some more Democrats. So so they're saying, you know, nationally that what was going to be a a shoe in for Republicans to take the U.S. Senate, not so much necessarily anymore. 
the redistricting was favorable towards Lauren Bober. If you look at the geography, you would be hard pressed to see major differences. The population centers largely remain the same. But I think there are two big events that happened in the last redistricting. One, her biggest, at least presumed challenger, Carrie Donovan, uh, was in a sense redistricted out of the district. You should never actually was in it. Yeah, to, yeah. To there was, was right on there was controversy right. over right. that, but it became clear after the redistricting that she wasn't going to be the challenger. So and, that was the Democratic challenger. That was yeah, a right. Democratic challenger. Right. The other piece is exactly right. I mean it, it went redder. It went up to a plus nine, which obviously is to Representative Bobert's favor. With uh, Donovan you're talking about the President pro tem of the State Colorado Senator Carrie Donovan. Senate, yes. yeah. She actually lives in Vail. She was on the city council in Vail. But even her family's ranch in Walcott was cut out of the district. Mm-hmm. And that was her tie in. Now, her Senate district, a lot of it is in the third CD, but she's term limited. And, and, and even though under the law, you don't have to live in the district to be a sitting congressperson, but it does help, especially for third CD, because they're very particular about their localism when it comes to that. So Yeah, I mean, in general, I feel that people might like to have their member of Congress live in the district. Right. And Don Corum, the Republican who ran against her in the primary, didn't do as well as people had hoped. He only got 35%. Yeah. 35%, right? Yeah, I think it's fair to say she has momentum on her side. And there are things that can change it, but it doesn't seem anything right now on the radar that seems to be threatening that. Yeah, I don't see it either. Frisch and Bobert will debate at Club 20 Saturday. That's the day after the famous steak fry. We've talked horse race to this point. What do you look forward to hearing issue-wise in that debate? Well, the one thing I like about that Club 20 debate, and we'll talk about some changes that they've made, because we're going to get to you know who's not coming uh-huh. eventually. But the only debate that I've ever seen across the state is that at the end, they allow each other to ask each other questions. And if you do that right, as a candidate, you can score some pretty good points if you do it right. You can look like a crybaby sometimes or, or just attacking. That's doing it wrong. So I'm wondering in this debate how much attention Lauren Boebert's going to actually give Adam Frisch. I mean, I think her strategy going into this is not to raise his name profile by giving him a lot of opportunities. I'm wondering how much he's just going to be on the offense against Democrats, against inflation, say his name as little as possible, try and get as many sound bites as possible, and really run against the big Democratic movement, if you will, um, Mm. capital D Democratic movement. And I I think her biggest advantage right now, and on the other hand, the biggest weakness for Adam Frisch is name recognition. He just doesn't have it. And the more that she can bury that, the better position she's in. So we had Charles invoking abortion and you invoked inflation there. I think if you look at it at a national level, we look at models that try and try and predict election outcomes by looking at economic factors. And what we've seen is that the inflation uh, numbers have chipped away at the Democratic. Any kind of advantage that they had going into this election, it chipped away at it until I agree with you, the issue of abortion came to the forefront. And certainly down at the CD3 level, um, I think inflation, gas prices, uh, that's definitely top of people's mind and will play an important role in people's vote choice. And it always does. I mean, it helped Biden get elected, I mean, you know, because of the pandemic uh, economy. And the economy is always a fundamental thing when it comes to elections. Yes, you can bring in the abortion issue just to get voters to the polls. But, you know, those kind of bread and butter issues like the economy and gas prices definitely uh, is going to be a major factor. We were at the food bank based at a Christian church in Clifton earlier this week, hearing about how much demand for their services has increased over last year alone. 
Okay, two high-profile Democrats are skipping the Club 20 debates, Governor Jared Polis and Senator Michael Bennett. What reasons have they given for not participating in the Club 20 tradition? Historical reasons. Uh, Polis has never debated at Club 20, even when he was in Congress for Congressional District 2, which Joe Neguse now holds, and he's not coming either, by the way. And Bennett, this is the first time I recall he did not come, because I think he was here six years ago, but... There's this, there has been this growing attitude among Democrats that Club 20 is not a friendly place for Democrats. Uh, is that true? A lot of the membership, there are Democrats, Republicans, and independents who are members of the group, but it does get packed. And because of some of the ways that they used to do the debate allowed them to pack in, uh, and it became a rally in many cases for a lot of candidates. Hmm. And so it was never a friendly place for Democrats. Now, because of that, this year, they've changed a lot of the debate format to accommodate that. It obviously came, at least the word, I guess, came too late to Polis and Bennett to change their mind to come. But they've changed a lot of the format. They're restricting how many people can get there. They're live streaming it on Facebook. And that was another argument because you have to pay to get in. It's the only debate you have to pay to get in because it's a private club, right? And so they're offering that for free. They're vetting their moderators a little bit better. Um, so we'll see how it goes this mm. year compared to previous years. So I can understand why uh, the governor and the senator don't want to put themselves in that situation. Of course, they don't say that's the reason. They say they have a conflict. Scheduling issue. A scheduling issue. That's <laughs> what they say. Well, we, we all know that we know what's going on and they know what's going on. And so uh, to her credit, Christine Reese, the executive director of Club 20, uh, got together with her board and a few others and came up with some other changes. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are uh, taking something of the political pulse on the Western Slope as we broadcast from Grand Junction this week with Charles Ashby, longtime reporter for the Grand Junction Daily Sentinel, who has covered politics for much of his career, and Justin Gollop, professor of political science at Colorado Mesa University. Let's talk about uh, an aspect of the cost of living and inflation, and that's housing. What are you seeing as the trends in housing on the Western Slope, um, particularly in your own community of Grand Junction, and how that plays into daily life here? It's an issue. It's an issue with voters. Uh, it's an issue with city government. And there's no real solid solutions at this point. There's a lot of attempts to address this issue. Now, it's an issue that's persistent. It's been here for a while, but it's certainly gaining some traction, I would say. The city of Grand Junction, they are looking at figuring out a way to bring affordable housing. The city of Fruta, they're in the same boat trying to figure out how to do that. I would say, you know, from a Western Slope, heck, even from an entire statewide perspective, affordable housing is one of the top issues on okay. voters. But it's not new. I mean, the, the mountain communities, for example, the resort communities, it's always been an issue for as long as I can remember. Yeah, workforce housing, especially exactly. in communities. Exactly, because they but don't it, pay them enough. But since pandemic, it seems to have increased. I mean, right. it's really made its way into the agenda. What about water? Uh, do you expect that to be a big theme, say, in the CD3 race? It always race? is. It uh -huh. always is. But water is never political. That's the thing that always gets me about water. So the, wait, wait. The, water is never it is political? It's not political. It's regional. I've seen Republicans and Democrats go in hand in hand fighting against other interests. And for the Western Slope, it's particularly hard because we get, we get pulled on both sides from the front range. 
uh, to the downstream states, and now things are getting worse with the drought and climate change. Hmm. Um, and so, but it's never it's never political, you know. It's really really interesting when you see when they talk about Trans Mountain diversions, uh, which we have a lot of going over to the Front Range because that's where the you know you're growing. You know, eighty percent of the population is in the Front Range, and eighty percent of the water is over here. It is funny because I used to live in Denver and lived under water water restrictions, and I came out here and I was sort of following those same restrictions, you know, only just voluntarily, and realized nobody's doing it, and it, it cost me fourteen bucks a day for unlimited water for my my lawn, which I don't want to have, but I do, uh, and so people just sort of adopt that and they use it up, and their attitude is, I'd rather use it than give it to California. Huh. You heard it here first. Water is the solution to our political problems yeah. and the political oh, divide. That, right. I appreciate that interpretation of it. Spoken like a professor of political science, <laughs> I think. Uh, we are in Mesa County, where the clerk remains, at least in name, Tina Peters, oh. who's under indictment. With her loss in the Republican primary for secretary of state, was there any great shift here in the strength of election denialism? Charles? No, not really. In fact, there's been a, a division in her own camp uh, over one of the main charges that she's facing is uh, identity theft. And one of the main people that she used, the name of the guy that she used, his identity was given to someone else. And that has created a schism in her original supporters, people who still believe in you know election denial issues or whatever you want to call it. But they're not with Tina Peters because of what, mm. she, what she did with that. And so they're, you know, we have a group. It's like a schism within a schism. Exactly. Exactly. There's a group here called uh, Stand for the Constitution that just just exploded over this issue for, of this person, Gerald Wood, who lives in Fruta. And he was the guy who was supposed to be hired to help her make copies of the hard drives. At the last minute, he wasn't used and he never got those credentials. He turned them over back to them and they gave it to allegedly, according to the court papers, this Conan uh, Hayes, the conspiracy theorist surfer from California. And no charges have yet been filed against him, although I wouldn't be surprised if that doesn't happen from the FBI level, maybe even state. I don't know. But it did make that group stand for the Constitution just divide right down the middle. About three weeks ago, their whole board just resigned over this and walked out. And their membership is, you know, went from like 300 to, you know, maybe 100 members. And they're, you know, they're the Tina Peters supporters still that's there. The rest of them are gone. And so, yeah, it's gotten uglier and uglier. That is a nuance I wasn't aware of. So thank you for that. But then you mean to say that in Mesa County, you think election denialism is alive and well? Oh, yeah. So just as it is all over the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, how much of a role do you think that will play in these elections, Professor? I think it depends on who we're talking about. The base, I think it certainly could be a factor that would motivate turnout and participation in the election. But, you know, when we talk about the way that this I mean, that's elect- interesting because the opposite effect could be that it suppresses it if you don't believe the system is uh, It could be. Fair. And what I'm talking about here is the base who goes into the election believing that already. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in terms of the CD3, really this election is going to hinge on the unaffiliated. That's where I mean, we have a pretty – Largest voting block. The largest voting right. block in CD3. Of which there's a few things that we can learn. There's not a lot of polling, but there's a few things that we do know amongst this group. They are not as favorable towards Lauren Boebert as definitely the Republicans. 
And, you know, just really thinking about going into this election, Adam Frisch is going to have to get name recognition amongst this group. They just don't know who he is. Mm -hmm. And he pointed out in our conversation earlier this week, the the district is the size of Mississippi. It's a massive district. And, And so to gain recognition in, you know, all the various media markets and just the mileage is quite a feat. He says he's having fun with it. You know, just back to Lauren Bobert for a moment, Charles Ashby. Can you help us separate, assuming it's possible, the kind of social media cable TV provocateur from her daily relationships with constituents? It's two different, two different audiences. All that is, is designed for fundraising, of which she does really well. But I want to go back for a minute. I mean, you talk about the election deniers and what impact they're going to have. They didn't have that impact on the in the primaries. I mean, the election deniers in the primaries on the GP side, they all lost. And so I don't know it's really going to play that big, big a, a role. But but you bring up that stuff about Bobert. That's the one thing that Republicans in the third GD like about her is that she – is a voice nationally. They feel like they're in the minority anyway. And so they need a big megaphone. And she provides that. And that was her first campaign promise that she has lived up to. When I first met her, before she came over close to winning anything, she said she wanted to be the AOC of of the Republican Party. And she Mm. has definitely become that. Uh, and so she's the go-to person. I mean, she's been smart enough to stay away from Tina Peters and the election denial stuff. Um, I mean, she's talked about, obviously, the Trump race and saying, you know, there were some issues there, but but she's not. And she also voted, uh, by the way. Right. And she did. To, she, not to certify the election. Right, right. She And that's true. She did. But that was very specific. But that was not about that was that was about other things that were going on in other states, such as legislatures. You know, she says legislatures didn't approve the use of drop boxes. They didn't approve the the mail-in or absentee ballots and all that other stuff. And and so, and so those are legitimate arguments to have. But when you come up with these conspiracy theories that, you know, China and bamboo paper and all this other stuff, she's stayed away from that. And, and I think she's been very smart about that. Professor? Yeah, I want to be clear. I, I, when it comes to election denialism, I don't think that this is going to be the issue that swings the CD3. My view is that when it comes down to when we parcel out the electorate, the base... Um, who may believe this, that it, it could encourage them to turn out and vote. But again, you know, when we're talking about voting factions, it's a relatively small group that's going to turn out. I don't think the election denialism making it an issue in this race would necessarily serve Lauren Boebert well. I think the more that she can, in a sense, just embrace it without necessarily promoting it and turning off independent voters, that's the strategy that she has to hmm. walk. So it's, it's interesting wa- line to walk. Yeah, it's kind of like that? holding the hand and walking quietly with the issue, right. not promoting it. So I, I think it's a very nuanced piece. Right. And she's but, been walking that line. I mean, early on, she met with the district attorney out here and came back and announced he's doing his job and just was wait to see what happens on that really upset Tina Peters supporters saying that she they expected her to be right behind them and pushing their agenda and, and whatever it is that they wanted. And they, they didn't like that about her. And so th- there is an impact, but I think it, probably to her benefit for the line that she's been walking. Yeah. And I, you know, I think I agree with Charles that if we learned anything about election denialism in elections, uh, we learned uh, some pretty good lessons in the, the recent primary elections. Thank you, gentlemen, for being with us. Oh, we done? That was too That's fast. It? I'm having oh. too much fun. <laughs> Thank you, Ryan. 
Justin Golub is a political science professor at Colorado Mesa University. Charles Ashby is a reporter for the Grand Junction Daily Sentinel. The Club 20 debates are Saturday. And we'll be right back as Colorado tries to piece together the history of its Indian boarding schools. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The largest source of support for Colorado Public Radio comes from members across our state. I'm from Denver. Aurora. Glenwood Spring. Grand Junction. Boulder. With your donation, you connect your city to nonprofit journalism, to inspiring stories, and you connect your community to a wide range of music that fills our daily life. Month after month, donors continue to step up. Thank you for your support. Near Durango, there used to be a federal boarding school for indigenous children. It was on the site of Fort Lewis. And researchers hope to uncover more about what happened there. Yesterday, they updated tribes and state officials on their investigation, which is still in its early stages. CPR's Rachel Estabrook listened in. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Ryan. Why is this research happening now? Um, There's lots of layers to that. So technically, it's happening now because a state law passed this past spring, and the law required that History Colorado lead a research team starting this summer, and it provided funding to go through next June for that research to happen. But I think more deeply, the answer to your question is that the discovery of mass graves at similar boarding school sites in Canada in 2021 really helped bring this about. Um, One lawmaker who helped uh, bring the legislation to mandate the research told me that he first had conversations about this sort of thing a decade ago at the state house, but that momentum really changed after the discoveries in Canada that were so shocking to so many people. Um, of course, you know, there's also a federal investigation into boarding schools led by the first indigenous secretary of the interior. And as I mentioned, the historians and archaeologists in Colorado have funding through 2023 next summer. But on Thursday, they really made it clear that the team expects the investigation to go beyond that. And what might any discoveries lead to? Yeah, that's an interesting question because whole communities were devastated by these boarding schools and figuring out what happened and educating the public is important, but it alone won't undo the harm that was done. So the legislation um, which brought about this research says that it's supposed to be a first step in a, quote, roadmap for education and healing. But that roadmap is really undefined. Um, It sort of depends what they find in the research. If graves are discovered, for example, then remains could be repatriated. As I listened in to this update, though, um, the chairman of the Ute Mountain Ute tribe, Manuel Hart, was also there. And he had a lot of thoughts to share about what could come next. He supports the research and he wants more acknowledgement of the atrocities that occurred. But he's also focused on how they can move move forward in his word positively and and start to bring back what was lost when children were forced to assimilate with language, culture, and traditions. We want to teach these young children that are in school right now about how rich and how beautiful it is to be who we are as natives and to continue having this language so programs do the study to initiate or even set aside funds To bring back what was taken away is something that we really need to look at in the long-term timeline 
to really advocate for Native Americans and in, in the atrocity that happened to us. Indeed, various Native languages are in jeopardy of disappearing. Uh, so what did Chairman Hart suggest that any of that could look like? Well, he floated the idea of another state bill or law that could spend state money on a community academy on the Ute Mountain Ute Reservation, for example. That's not included in the law that already passed that just mandates this research, but it's an idea for lawmakers to consider in the future. And he made sure to mention that other nations besides the Ute and Ute Mountain Ute who may have had children taken to the sites in Colorado also should be included in any future reconciliation. What do we know and where are gaps in our knowledge of the Indian boarding school near Durango? Like at these schools across the country and in Canada, indigenous children were forced to abandon their cultures and languages and assimilate into white Anglo culture. The Fort Lewis school operated for about 20 years around the turn of the 20th century. Um, I did talk to a couple of the lawmakers who sponsored the bill that brought about the research that's going on now. One of them is Democratic State Representative Barbara McLaughlin from Durango. We suspect, we don't know, that there's bodies buried on the campus, on one of the campuses. We suspect people have stories to tell of what happened there that have never felt comfortable telling perhaps white people uh, what had happened to them or their family member on the Fort Lewis campus. And I think those are the things that we need to know. What are the, the true stories? Where um, are their bodies buried there? What happened to these kids? And I don't know if we will find solutions, but if we don't look, we're certainly not going to find solutions. This uh, isn't the only boarding school that was in Colorado. In just a few seconds, Rachel, what about the others? The Teller Institute was in Grand Junction. They're currently doing research at that site, too. It's a little bit ahead of where they are at Fort Lewis. Um, we don't exactly know what they've found so far, but they did some some uh, on-site research this summer with tribal monitors. So uh, we'll see what happens. CPR's Rachel Estabrook on unearthing the history of federal boarding schools for indigenous children. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Music has this special ability to elevate the stories we tell, make you feel seen, help you to understand someone else's experience. That's part of the joy of listening to music and exactly what we're exploring in the CPR podcast, Music Blocks. Five-minute musical explorations to help inspire great conversations about music in classrooms and during family time. Season two of the award-winning podcast, Music Blocks, is all about the stories of our lives. Find it wherever you listen. Getting to nature isn't always easy. For young people of color especially, money and time can be barriers. It's why the state created outdoor equity grants. Here in Mesa County, District 51 has already put the money to use, sending fifth graders on a two-day conservation field trip. Gabriel Otero Afruta works for the Wilderness Society. He helped create these equity grants in Colorado, and he spoke with my colleague Carla Jimenez. Tell me about one of your favorite outdoor places. What makes it your favorite? 
One of my favorite outdoor places is the Grand Mesa. I really enjoy Cottonwoods uh, for camping and fishing, Vega Reservoir for similar things, and then just anywhere um, up, you know, on top of Mesa Lakes or um, going snowshoeing, you know, during the winter time. There's just so much to do up there. You know, I, I really enjoy hiking along Canna Creek. But yeah, overall, just the Grand Mesa. It's it's one of the first places that I remember going to as a you know as a kid with my family and. I'd say, you know, next to that are a couple of different hunting spots, but I don't like to always give those away. But um, <laughs> yeah, definitely the Grand Mesa. So describe for me how you feel whenever you go to the Grand Mesa. So like, close your eyes, pretend you're there, and describe how you're feeling. I'm a spiritual person, so I feel closer to our creator, to God. I'm a fourth generation Coloradan, so you know, my family's been here a long time. Um, they're actually here even before. This was the United States, so just knowing that that having that deep connection, knowing that my grandfather and great grandfather, you know, are a, a part of these lands, and so that real connection to family as well, and it's 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 healing, it's it's restorative. Uh, nature is for me, so just getting out there where it's quiet and you can just kind of hang out and soak it all in. I, it's that's what it is for me. So it's, it definitely has a healing piece to it. You talked a little bit about it. You talked about sort of an ancestral, familial connection to the outdoors. But can you talk a little bit more about that? Talk about your history with outdoor spaces. Is this something that you've always grown up with? Yeah. So both of my great-grandfathers are ranchers. And then my grandfather, who lived here in Fruta, who actually didn't get a chance to meet because he was, he was a coal miner as well. He, uh, he passed away from black lung you know they didn't have those type of regulations they have today um so he was a you know um exposed to a lot more things um but you know he he had a garden a huge garden um that he would not only feed uh, my family with but also other folks in the community and um you know hunting for him and for my family was the way that they provided you know food for their families in the winter for me now it's, you know, just more of a recreational activity, but that definitely was instilled in me as a young person. So like when it comes to hunting or fishing and things like that, like we don't waste anything that we get, we use everything we get. And so having like that instilled in me really has shaped the way that I view the natural world. Also to be good stewards of the land. Um, as I mentioned, the spiritual side, we're called upon to be good stewards of the land. So we need to leave the world, uh, you know, in a better place than we found it. And I, I really like that seven generation rule of having things so that, you know, future generations can enjoy the, these special places that we've been able to enjoy. You're a member of the Wilderness Society. Can you describe your role with this group? Right now, uh, my role is working on various campaigns. Uh, I've been working a lot on national monuments and outdoor equity as well, particularly state-based outdoor equity funds. I work closely on the effort here in Colorado with Next 100 Colorado and, you know, and communities on the ground. I want to focus specifically on the equity part. You and the Wilderness Society were instrumental in setting up a grant program that helps get kids, especially students who come from underserved communities, in the outdoors. Why was this important to you? 
Yeah, that's that's a good question. You know, that's always been something that's been important to me just growing up in my community and being able to go out and, you know, go to the Grand Mesa, go fishing, go hiking, go camping, go doing those things. There was a lot of kids that I went to school with that didn't get a chance to do that. Um, and I wasn't made aware of that until I was probably, you know, getting out of middle school, going into high school, when I really realized just how privileged I was to be able to do those things. As folks know, it costs money to get out to these places, you know, whether that's gas money, you know, um, it definitely takes time. So, you know, a lot of people have can be cost prohibitive, but also, you know, just the time to get out there if they're working two jobs or things like that to do certain activities you need, right, uh, hiking boots or, uh, you know, snowboard, whatever that may be, activity that you're doing, hunting, need a rifle, a hunter safety, et cetera. And so making these opportunities more accessible to youth, it really matters because in order for someone to care and fall in love with the place and want to protect it, they need to go and experience it. And what better way to do that than to get the youth outside? And there's so many great partners here in Colorado, and I believe, you know, here in our country, but specifically in Colorado, that can help achieve that goal of making the outdoors more accessible for all. And so with that, New Mexico had the first outdoor equity grant program that was created, I believe, in 2019. Um, and that was inspiration for this one. And so, you know, we got together. And as I mentioned, yes, the Wilderness Society did support this effort. The Next 100 Colorado led on it, along with our, our champion, Leslie Harrod, and, and others. And so, us being able to, to pull that together and, and, you know, get that passed into law has just been awesome. We've, this was the inaugural grant cycle this year that went out um, in the spring and um, community partners are doing programming all across the state. Um, and, and this, this kind of work is really transformative in youth's lives as well. So it's, it's really cool to see that happening. And um, I look forward to continue supporting that and continue getting more resources so that we can reach more young people. I, I should also note that the demand was a lot higher than, than what we had, you know, um, money allocated for it. So that was a good sign that, you know, we need more resources for it and, and that this work is happening all across the state. And, you know, we're hoping to, to increase that so that uh, all of these different organizations and groups that applied for this funding are able to, to get funding here in the future. You mentioned why it's important for young people to get outdoors. Uh, but why is it important for students typically in underserved communities in particular? Absolutely, yeah. So students in underserved communities are the ones who have the most barriers to getting outdoors. They typically, you know, they're coming from a low, lower income community, so they don't, they just lack access. As I mentioned, it can be cost prohibitive to get out and do these activities. Um, also, it takes time to get out and do that. So if, you know, you come from a household where, you know, your parents are working one or two jobs, things like that, you just might not have the time to go out and do those things. So having other organizations in the community that provide that opportunity is vital. And, and for youth to get outside, it's proven that it helps them with their mental health, helps them with their physical health, obviously. Um, and also they do better in school. They have less interactions with law enforcement. So it's a win across the board for our youth and especially for those that lack, you know, that opportunity. And also I should mention, too, that, yes, this is for youth, but it's also families. 
our families, uh, you know, we're, we're all interconnected in this. So when you're reaching young people, you're also reaching the families, which can then, you know, help to transform and uplift a community. Have you personally seen how access to the outdoor spaces can affect students? I have, yeah. I, I did. I worked on several different efforts where we got, uh, you know, or took young people outside. And from that, those young people went on to, you know, careers in conservation or, you know, outdoor retail, different things like that. And they told me after those experiences. So for one, for example, we went, I took some students out to Bears Ears National Monument. And after that experience, they said, I probably would have never come out here if it wasn't for this trip. But I'm so glad that I did. And I didn't know these careers existed. <laughs> There's just a lot. They, they just don't know that those opportunities are out there. And so being able to open up and you know, diversify the, the workforce pipeline for these organizations and businesses that are, you know, looking um, for diverse uh, workers, but also, you know, creating those opportunities for those young people to go into those careers and make a difference. And because we all know that, you know, diversity is our strength. I, I definitely have, you know, more stories like that, but that's one that comes to mind. Another one is when we took some youth out to Arches National Park, which is outside of Moab, Utah. Mm-hmm. We took some youth from uh, Salt Lake, the inner city there, but then also some from Moab. Surprisingly, I believe it was over 60% of the young people there hadn't been to Arches, which even though it's, you know, maybe a 15-minute walk from the town, but just because of those barriers that were there, um, and a lot of their parents were working in a service industry and, and things of that nature and didn't have the opportunity to take them to the park. The Colorado Canyons Association took advantage of this grant program this year, the inaugural program, to host two-day field trips in both English and Spanish for District 51's dual immersion fifth grade class. Do you know how it went? I have not got a report on that yet. Um, I'm hoping to connect with them soon. I was so excited to hear that they got funding, um, especially the work that they do with dual immersion. Um, Dual immersion is the only school we have right now in school district 51, which serves Mesa County that provides, you know, uh, learning in English and Spanish, the kindergarten through eighth grade. And so then being able to work with those students, a lot of those students, you know, I, I believe half the school, the way it's made up is you either have English as a first language or Spanish as a first language. And so being able to provide that opportunity for that youth is just, it's just awesome. They do Colorado Canyons has a lot of other great programming. I know they partner with Bureau of Land Management as well on, on other uh, youth focused trips. So I was really excited they got it. Sometimes the leadership for outdoor organizations like these are staffed mostly by white people. Um, can that be considered a barrier? It, it can. Um, you know, representation absolutely matters, right? So uh, the messenger can matter as well. You know, if you have a group of, let's say, for example, Latino kids or African-American kids and, you know, their instructor that's taking them to these places or their educator, you know, the curator is someone like them, they're, they're going to see themselves in that. And it can it can be something that can, one, inspire them to say, oh, OK, you know, they can do it. I can do it. And also there's the cultural barriers that can be there, too. Right. 
Um, obviously, there's a language barrier. So if you don't speak Spanish and you're serving primarily Spanish-speaking population, that that's a barrier. And so I think diversifying organizations and hiring roles, uh, you know, creating new roles for folks to come on that are able to speak to different communities, I think that absolutely matters. Having said that, there are ways where if you're a smaller organization and you don't have many staff, you can bring on others to help you, um, whether that's with translation services or, you know, there's there's different ways that you can do that to work with community. But, you know, in, in general, I would encourage groups, organizations to hire diverse candidates so that you can reach those populations. So what is the next step for equity programs like this, uh, these grant programs that you have been championing? Well, I think two things are growth and then ensuring that it's equitable. And so by growth, I mean that there's there's a high need for these programs. Right now, there's uh, several states that have them. The most prominently are California, New Mexico, and Colorado. But there are others that have similar outdoor equity programs. They may not have the funding that those states that I just mentioned have. But just being able to get more resources to the states that do have them in place so that we can ensure that groups that are applying are able to get that so they can reach their community. So I think that's one part of it to work on going forward. I think the other part of it is, like I mentioned, to make sure that they're equitable. So just looking at who is applying for the funding, who's receiving the funding, and who's not receiving the funding to ensure that those that need it the most are getting the help. Um, And I think that, you know, those states are doing a really good job of that. They have staff dedicated to that. But it's just something we have to remain diligent about, right? And so those two things, I think, will definitely help. And and, an expansion, you know, other states want to get these off the ground. I believe Nevada is one of them, and there are are many others. But helping those states also stand that up and then hopefully do this at a national level as well, where we can have a national outdoor equity grant program that can help fund the states and things of that nature. So I think those are the big goals going forward, but we have a lot to do, you know, at the state level as well. Gabrielle, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you. I really appreciate it, and I'd love to come back anytime. Gabrielle Otero Afruda is a senior campaign specialist for the Wilderness Society. He spoke with public affairs producer Carla Jimenez. Back in a bit with drag queens of the Grand Valley. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News in Grand Junction. A grove of aspen, all turning one vibrant color, is also a sign of something underground. Those hundred golden or fiery red trees are all one organism. A quaking aspen clones itself from its roots, sprouting shoots and suckers, and becoming an aggregate of genetically identical trees that can cover a hundred acres. A single tree may stand a hundred years, but the clone may last for thousands, doing best on gravelly slopes and quickly filling in areas wildfires have made bare. The wind blowing through aspens sounds like nothing else in the forest. A soft rustle of green on a summer day or a dry rattle in winter with most of the leaves gone. And black marks on the white bark of an aspen reveal what else has passed by. A bear or deer and elk or even shepherds alone in the high country a long time ago. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of Dazzle Jazz celebrating 25 years. When you think of Mesa County, you might think of peaches, the Colorado River, maybe conservative politics. 
but probably not drag queens. Yet, there's a burgeoning drag scene here. Its centerpiece is a monthly show that draws queer and straight folks alike. CPR's Western Slope reporter, Stina Sieg, takes us to Charlie Dwellington's, a bar just down the street from us on Main Street. Everybody, welcome to the show. The rules of engagement are really quite simple. The crowd is huge and a little tipsy, and host Stella Ray Van Dyke is working the floor, flawlessly lip-syncing as she saunters up to groups, giving them a little shimmy as they hand over dollar bills and toss them on the floor. Her blonde wig flows over a skin-tight bodysuit, a loud tangle of colorful geometric shapes. I am plus size. I am a full-figured woman here giving you that full, delicious, full-flavor experience. This is Second Saturday, the show for audiences 21 and older that Stella founded in 2019. It welcomes a mix of local drag veterans and performers just starting out. It's real, it's art, and it's, um, it's raw. And inclusive. That's what really stands out to Kandri Zavala, also performing tonight. We don't just have one type of drag. We have beautiful queens, we have butch queens, we have bearded queens, we have all kinds of queens, we have kings. <laughs> Kandri is also in a bodysuit, her hips augmented by pieces of a foam mattress hidden under layers of pantyhose. She lives about an hour away in the small town of Cedar Edge, where she works as a landscaper. But she says that's only when she's in boy mode. As soon as I clock out on Fridays, I'm like, Kendra's alive, like, let's go, let's go party, let's go shave, let's go get glam, let's... Weekends are for her, (laughs) weekdays are for him. (laughs) As she waves her giant fan, Kendra says she has performed in a big city before, but she doesn't think her drag was really appreciated there. Here, she feels the scene is much more open. You could even get on stage. We come over here and be our little virgin sacrifice. The Virgin Sacrifice, a second Saturday staple, when a drag newcomer performs for the first time. Tonight, some friends volunteer a reluctant man. He protests a little as he puts on a blonde wig, but as he starts to gyrate for the audience, he gets into it. Dollars fly as he hams it up. And for this song, all the proceeds go to a local animal shelter, where his fiancé works. Afterward, I asked Mark Sagel if he ever expected to get up there. Absolutely not. I'm a straight guy, but these are all good people, so why would you never think any other way, you know? This is a place to try on a new persona, or just be yourself. Performer Dark Mistress Juliet says when she first started presenting as a trans woman in Grand Junction, she was scared to even go outside to get her mail. And then I came down here the first time and I sat in a corner and a couple of the boys just said, hey, it's okay, who are you? And, you know, and from there, the love of the community has helped me so much. And I'm now in a place where I am helping a few others. When she dances in her short purple and black witch dress, she's flanked by a young drag king, a newbie. 
Juliet's only been doing this about a year, and she says she already feels part of the family. Community and unity. That's what Second Saturday founder Stella says this is all about. She thinks her kid self, growing up in a tiny nearby community, would be in total disbelief to see this happening here. I mean, I imagined it, I dreamed it, but like I also dreamed of going back in time and traveling the universe. Like, this thing's not going to happen. And for a long time, there was little drag in Grand Junction, after a small scene mostly died out in the 1990s. But about 10 years ago, Stella met a Denver queen who painted her face for the first time. Stella never felt more beautiful, and later called a local bar and asked if she could perform for Halloween. I mean, of course, my makeup wasn't very good, and, like, I didn't really know what I was doing, but the audience liked it, and they really, really responded to it, and that was, that was, like, the first hit, you know what I mean? And it, it, it was wonderful, and I loved it, and it, it, I truly felt electric, and I think the last 10 years has just been chasing that high. <laughs> In a famously conservative area. Estella says she sometimes gets worried about the fear some people are pushing about drag queens, including her own congressperson. And her show did attract a single protester one time. But Stella says, in general, what she hears is appreciation from her own town and beyond. People who are not from this area or from this region, um, they will come here and they, they'll make comments like, I had no idea that this was out here, and I'm so happy that it is. So I'm aware of what people think about us, but I'm here to change that. Typically, each second Saturday ends the same way. All the performers get back on stage together, and a familiar song starts to play. How do you measure a human life? Asks this iconic tune from the musical Rent. Stella says the answer is the same thing that brings these performers here month after month. In Grand Junction, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. Second Saturday celebrates its third anniversary this Saturday night. It's also Pride Week here in Grand Junction, with Colorado West Pride hosting many events for the next few days. That'll culminate with a parade down Main Street Sunday. And that is Colorado Matters for today. My drag name would be Miss Anthrope. Special thanks to Elena Vetter. This is CPR News in Grand Junction.